when it would be announced in the ambassador crowd that we were going to sing that one, we all cheered. Just uh, so moving to sing and to consider the words, and the words are right here in the context of where we're headed today. I was amazed this morning after I had chosen that selection days ago that uh, Exodus 14:15 was turned to, and it says, "Forward, go forward, you people. Onward, you people." Is same thing. Uh, it seems that there is a pattern that is being developed here today in all four of the speaking opportunities. This morning at the sermonette, we heard of God's great deliverance of Israel and how they murmured even before it happened and immediately after. Then we had a lesson in the humility and the attitude that we need to have, which they certainly did not have. They were arrogant, proud, vain, worried about themselves rather than looking to the Almighty God who could save them. And then we heard about leaving Egypt and Babylon, our sin, and moving forward. Now let's see where Isaiah takes us from this point. I am going to knock the rest of this in the head today one way or the other in terms of the living God. That series, it perhaps is a little lost, that direct message in uh, approaching these scriptures from Isaiah 40 on through the end of the book in terms of the end time work, but the theme is always playing in the background because everything in the end time work and everything leading up to the kingdom of God is there to show that there truly is a living God. Now, we went through a message. We see God calling people to be His witnesses that He is God. We saw Him providing uh, treasures to build His temple, to show from the east to the west that He is God. We saw Babylon fall in terms of the context. We saw... Christ's sacrifice and the stretching of the tent poles and cords because God is going to do a great gathering in Isaiah 54 and 55 and how all our needs would be provided. Then it switched a bit and we saw some more discussion of our sins and our problems. And then it switched back in 60 and 61 and even projected forward into the kingdom of God. Now, we have five chapters left, and we're going to see a milieu of those themes that we have looked at, because he will project forward a bit into what we are looking to, and then he will draw back a little in what we are still dealing with. And that's right where we are, in that God is about to do a gathering, Babylon is about to fall. And we're going to move forward toward the kingdom of God. But that does not mean that everything is going to be rosy from that point forward, because we will still be living as human beings. 1 Corinthians 15 makes it very clear that we will be human until this corruption puts on incorruption and this mortality immortality. 
And then, and only then, will death be swallowed up in victory. Because we could still fail, even up to the time of the resurrection, if for some reason we turn from God. Now, if we make it that far, I don't think that will happen. But there is always that possibility that we as human beings will fail to achieve what it is that is put before us. But God says he will help us and he will never forsake us. So let's pick it up here in chapter 62. 60 and 61 does talk about uh, the same things Revelation 21 does, as we saw in the Bible study the other night. So it's projecting on forward into the kingdom of God. Now in 62, he says, For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace. I'm not going to sit back and do nothing. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. I'm going to see this thing through, God says. Until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burns. And the Gentiles shall see your righteousness, and all kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Eternal shall name. Now that ties with Revelation 2 and 3 very closely, where he says, I will give you a new name, and you only will be able to pronounce it. So he's projecting this forward. I'm not going to rest, he said, until you're in the kingdom of God and you have your new name. Thou also shall be a crown of glory in the hand of the Eternal. Remember Malachi? He says those who speak of these things and talk of God and center their attention on Him will be the jewels that He uses to make up His crowns. Same language. He's talking there of the reward in the kingdom of God. You shall no more be termed forsaken... Neither your land any more be termed or called desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah. Mighty light is in her, is what Hephzibah means. And, you shall, and the land Beulah, or married in the Hebrew. For the eternal delights in you, and your land shall be married. So God is going to marry us all, the whole land. This isn't just the remnant at the end of the age. This is the spreading of salvation across Israel and ultimately around the world. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So Christ and his bride are spoken of here. And instead of our children being alienated from us, it says they're going to marry us. Mary means come together closely, tightly together. We're looking forward to that time. I have set watchmen upon your walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace, day nor night. You that make mention of the eternal, keep not silence. So he says, don't stop it. Keep saying it over and over again. Warning, pressuring, cajoling, chastening, encouraging, inspiring, strengthening, doing everything you can by word of mouth and Scripture to make sure that the message gets out there to people. 
And speaking of God, you that make mention of the eternal, keep not silence. It's all about Him, isn't it? It's not all about us. We have to become as much like Him as we can. But He is the one who's going to do all this. We can't do it. Of ourselves, we can do nothing. How much can we do? We can be here. We can put forth a feeble attempt to grow and change and overcome. But you've noticed, as have I, that we all change very slowly, don't we? We change more quickly when there is heat and pressure. Otherwise, we just la-la-la along. But God is the one who has to bring forth salvation. He is the one who has to bless, to change things. So what does it say in our relationship then to Him? Give Him no rest till He establish and till He make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Don't let Him rest. Keep after Him. Remember the story that Christ related about the woman who kept after the unjust judge. God is not unjust, but the analogy is there. He wouldn't listen to her. And she just kept after him and kept after him and kept after him until he said, Oh, take what you want, just go away. He wants us to approach him in that manner with a humble, meek attitude but with our cry, our plea, our Father in heaven. Read on down a little bit. Thy kingdom come. That's what we need to be doing. Give him no rest until that kingdom is here. The eternal is sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. Surely I will no more give you your corn to be meat for your enemies, and and the sons of the stranger shall not drink your wine, for the which you have labored. Remember Haggai tells us it's like having wages and a hole in your pocket? In other places it talks about how our money does us no good. Again in Isaiah 55, I think it says the same thing essentially. Several places. He says it's going to change. That won't be anymore. So when God begins to gather and to bless as per Isaiah 54 and 55... He keeps reiterating the blessings that are going to come. He will reiterate our problems. And He'll keep reminding us of the kingdom that is just ahead. So, that's what this context is all about. But they that have gathered it shall eat it. And praise the Eternal. You will reap what you sow, and you will enjoy what you have reaped. And they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. So it will all be done under God's jurisdiction, His rule, His oversight, in peace, happiness, and pleasure. So then he says, with this in mind, knowing that this is what is coming, that God is going to provide, go through, go through the gates, prepare you the way of the people, cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, Lift up a standard for the people. So God says, somebody has to take the lead. Go through the gate. Get the rocks, the stumbling blocks out of the way. And set up a standard, a banner, a flag for people to follow. He's calling upon those who read these scriptures, who understand God's way, to be those 
who do this. To prepare the way, get everything out of the way, and show the people where to go and what to do. That's why he is giving us this knowledge and understanding, is so that we can do that. Only those that he gives the knowledge to have opportunity to do the job. So you who are given this knowledge then are expected by God to do the job. With knowledge comes responsibility and then accountability. So this is a call for anyone who understands. Therefore, we are obligated, are we not? Behold, the Eternal is proclaimed to the end of the world. Say you to the daughter of Zion. That's the church, and it's the daughter that he picks out of them all, saying you are the fairest, Proverbs 31. I would hope we could be included in that when he puts it together. I want us to be. He wants us to be. We're not saying we're the very elect or the church of the very elect. don't want to say that at all. Humility is the key. I just hope we're part of it when it happens. And we have opportunity to be part of it if we respond to God. <clears throat> so he says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Now is a good time to be reminding the church that the salvation of God is coming. It's getting close. It's, being, it's near. These are important scriptures to consider. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Revelation 11:18 quotes that directly. It is time for you to return and bring the reward for the holy prophets since the world began and to do your work that is before you. We're reading New Testament here, aren't we? Yes, it's talking about the end time. John quoted this directly. So it doesn't matter whether we're reading Isaiah or Revelation. It's the same story, same message. And they shall call them the holy people. Everyone is going to recognize that those are the holy people. That has to be after Christ returns and we are kings and priests in the new Jerusalem of God. Because up until that time, we're going to be disdained and hated as satanic people. Because the God of this world is going to provide a Savior. And the whole world will worship Him. He will not keep the commandments. That is how you know the people of God. By how they love each other. And that is the keeping of the commandments, isn't it? They shall call them the holy people the redeemed of the eternal, and you shall be called sought out, everyone seeking you suddenly. That won't happen until the kingdom of God is set up. Then they will seek those who have been righteous. Not until. A city not forsaken. Jerusalem is forsaken and desolate today, but then it will be a city not forsaken. Very interesting analogy then in chapter 62. Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? 
this that is glorious in his apparel. Now we're going to see this is speaking of Christ. Well, why would he be coming from Edom? With Well, let's read on. Traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. That could only be Christ. Wherefore are you in red, your apparel, and your garments like him that treads in the wine fat? So Christ is coming because Esau was red, and the red badge of Rothschild is of Esau, and the bloodiness of Esau is through the Bible and shows that they will triumph over Jacob in the last days. That was made as a promise of the way things would go. And then God would punish Esau because they laugh at the calamity of Israel. Read Obadiah, read the end of Genesis. Well, why would Christ be coming to save and be in red? The blood of Esau. It says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. So he says, I'm coming. Go back and read Revelation. He's going to be coming on a horse, and all his company with him, the bride, riding with him. And he's going to come in garments stained with blood. Because after the honeymoon, he is going to come back and in judgment make war. And put, do the final put-down of the rebellion of mankind. That's what this is speaking of here. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. So he talks about a day of vengeance. A day is as a year with him. But he mentions the year of my redeemed. What year is that? Well, the year is when he raises them up and takes them back to his father's throne for the year of honeymoon. To get to know his bride, and he does not go to war or work during that time, as Deuteronomy clearly shows. And then he will come back, for we will ever be with him once we rise to meet him. And he will do this final battle on the earth. His garments in blood. So the year of his redeemed has come, the day of atonement, the marriage of the Lamb to the bride, and the putting away of Satan for a thousand years. And I looked, and there was none to help. This is something he's going to take care of himself. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation to me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in my anger. And make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Stand up against Christ and see what happens. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Eternal and the praises of the Eternal according to all that the Eternal has bestowed on us. So he's contrasting here the bride and how she is rewarded and those who are still in rebellion on the earth. And what he will do to them, then he comes back and talks to us about the blessing that will come and his kindness that he has bestowed upon us. And the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, 
children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. He's talking about the church here that is saved out of all this. We won't lie. We will stand. And we will proclaim that he is Christ. And the rest of the world will reject him. Just as they rejected him the first time he came, they will reject him again. And he will have to come back and in righteousness judge and make war. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. In the affliction that we go through here in the end, he feels it. He has been afflicted by men as well in the past. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. So here he flashes back all the way to how he took care of Israel in the past, delivered them. Sometimes they had to go into captivity. Sometimes they were chastened heavily. And here in the end time, the same thing happened. It happened in the early New Testament church. They obeyed for a while, and then a great falling away occurred, and the church virtually disappeared. Here in the end, he did a calling. People did pretty well for a while. Their spiritual strength waned, and a great falling away has occurred. But a faithful remnant will be called out of all this. It's a pattern that has been repeated. So he goes back and brings that up and says he carried them all the days of old. He didn't forsake them. He stayed with them. He's brought it through to this end. That's why it says in the New Testament, he will never leave you nor forsake you. And we have a history to show that. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them. Who has his Holy Spirit? They didn't in the Old Testament. We do today. And we turned. And it vexed him, and he vexed us, and he scattered us, and he has fought against us. Turned his face from us, but he's fought against the church. Puking you up is pretty much fighting against you. You know, when, when you're something sours in your stomach, it is fighting against you, isn't it? Makes you nauseated. And when it finally comes up, you get some relief. Now, we were vexing God. We were nauseating Him. And then He puked us up and wiped His mouth off and turned His head and said, I don't want to look at that mess. Now, this has to change. And it does. Lest we get too gruesome here. Verse 11. Then, once He had fought us, once He had scattered us, then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? So it says, after he's relieved of the sin that we had, and he says he'll remove it as a cloud in one day, once he's relieved of that burden, he can then again face us and remember what he did for Moses, what he did for Israel, and what he is about to do then for us here in the end time. That led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm 
dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name. Is this Passover timeliness or what? Here in the end of Isaiah, we read about Passover in the days of unleavened bread. Because God makes a big deal of it here at the end. And right there in Isaiah 53, we recount what Christ went through far before he ever went through it. So instead of it being a prophecy of the future now, it is a memory from the past. So we look back on his Passover, and we're thankful that it is there for us. And he is going to deliver us again, just as he did then. He led them through the deep as the horse in the wilderness, that they should not stumble. As a beast that goes down into the valley, the Spirit of the Eternal caused him to rest. So did you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. Destroyed the Egyptian empire, delivered his people through a wall of water on the sides, drowned the Egyptians, and took them out and fed them and led them with a cloud and a pillar of fire. Just as he says in Zechariah, he is going to do again here in the end time. A wall of fire around and a covert from the heat and maybe the radiation as well. Who knows? Protection from everything that would harm. Look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of your holiness and of your glory. Where is the zeal and your strength, the sounding of your bowels and of your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Remember what we read in chapter 51, verse 9? Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the eternal. Awake, as in the ancient days and the generations of old, when you cut Rahab and wounded the dragon. Open the Red Sea. Isaiah is reminding us of what was written right back there. Because this is all a context that fits together in one story. So, the cry to awake is again repeated here in that sense. Look down from heaven. Are your emotions toward us now? Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our Father. Now, we're going to find shortly that God was not called a Father much in the Old Testament. But this is a forward-looking prophecy to today, at a time when He has designated Himself as our Father. So this is used here in the end-time context. Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us. How is Abraham ignorant of us? Well, he's been dead for thousands of years. But Father Abraham was told he would have seed in the end-time, and we would inhabit the promised land that was given to Abraham, and so here we are. And Abraham is dead. He knows nothing. He's not in heaven looking down upon us. He knows nothing of us. He died with a promise on his lips that we would be here. And here we are. God has been faithful to Abraham, though Abraham is dead. Though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. The physical peoples of Israel do not acknowledge us, do they? The Jews do not acknowledge us. We are the true Latter-day Saints. The Mormons are not. That's us. It says so right here in Isaiah. 
You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer. Your name is from everlasting. So, New Testament language written here in the Old Testament, looking forward to the day you and I would keep this day and be spoken of. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Those things he promised to Abraham and to Israel all those days back. Abraham's dead, and Israel around us does not recognize who and what we are. O Eternal, why have you made us to err from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? You know, God has had his hand in this. He hardened Pharaoh's heart, did he not? I heard a sermon at one time that used the Hebrew and said that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And maybe that's the case. We certainly harden ours. But God has put the church through some trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, breakup, all kinds of things. And a lot of people's hearts have been hardened. And God has allowed that. He wanted us to learn some things. Why have you made us to err from your ways and hardened our heart? Where was the kind of leadership we needed to keep us on the right path? It died out. And there was no one among all our sons to lead her. That's where we've been. Return for your servant's sake the tribes of your inheritance. So when we do not give God any rest, what do we pray? We pray, return to the tribes of your inheritance. Look upon us, have mercy, love us, bless us, help us serve you, and be a witness that you were God. That's the prayer we pray. Not give me more money. Not do this for me, do that for me. Fulfill the purpose for which we're here. The people of your holiness have possessed it but a little while. The land has been desolate. It's only been recently that we came back into the land. We're allowed to come back after being taken into captivity many, many centuries ago. 1607, we came back permanently and have crawled across the land like fleas and polluted it terribly once again. We've only had it a little while and look what we've done to it. And those who have been directly of His holiness, called out, given His Spirit, didn't last very long with the church either, did they? If you think Israel did a bad job coming back to this land physically and polluting it and destroying it, what did we as a church do to the holiness that God directed us to? We've polluted that pretty badly, haven't we? And we haven't had it very long, have we? A little over 70 years. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We're yours. You never bore rule over them. They weren't called by your name. We're to use this reasoning. We didn't have it very long and then we blew it. Please help us and deliver us. Help us repent, turn to you with our heart, and deliver us yet again, Father. Reminds me of the bumper stickers up in Alaska I saw. Lord, give us one more boom. This time I won't it away. Or blow it. 
It's not exactly what it said, but you kind of get it, I think. Okay, here's our attitude, chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might flow down at your presence. There's a prayer. You ever run out of anything to say in prayer? Well, once you exhaust the Psalms, come to Isaiah 64. Don't give him any rest. Oh God, rend the heavens and come down. We need you. That the mountains might flow down at your presence, as when the melting fire burns, the fire causes the waters to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. We want God to exhibit His strong arm and come down and put the nations down and bring peace and happiness in a world tomorrow. Not a new world order, but a world tomorrow. And there is a difference. When you did terrible things, which we looked not for, you came down, the mountains flowed at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither has the eye seen, O God, beside you, what he has prepared for him that waits for him. Who's he writing to? Who was Paul writing to in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 when he quoted this almost word for word? To the church. So if it was talking to the church in Paul's day, it's talking to the church today. And this is the original statement, not the quote by Paul. We cannot even imagine how incredible it's going to be to be a part of the kingdom of God. Our thinking is mired in human experience. And only as we read these scriptures and use our imaginations can we even begin to grasp what it is that lies in store for us. None of us can, out, none of us can comprehend total peace, total safety, security, not wanting anything. We can't imagine a time when there is no sorrow, no pain, no tears, no hurt, no bad hair days, no nothing bad ever again. That blows my mind. I can't comprehend it. That's what he's saying. Verse 5, you meet him that rejoices and works righteousness, those that remember you in your ways. We need to remember. We need to read and remember the things God has done in the past and how he's delivered people. Like Noah. Like Joseph. Like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. On and on the stories go. And how God has delivered. And what he can do. And what he will do. Those that remember you in your ways, behold, you are angry, for we have sinned, and those is, in those is continuance, and we shall be saved. So he says, even though the gathering come, even though my blessings come, you still have not swallowed death up in victory. So this is speaking of the end time church right at the end. Once these things have begun to transpire, we still have 
a battle on our hands. He's going to save us out of it. But we're all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So no matter God turned things around, no matter how beautiful a picture He may paint of what is to come, we of ourselves are nothing and worse than nothing. A stench, a fading leaf, a withering piece of grass. That's all we're worth. We're human. We're going to die. Maybe we'll be changed if we live till the end. But we'll die and rot. Unless God in His almighty love and power and saving grace delivers, delivers us from ourselves, we are nothing. Christ understood that. He said, of myself I am nothing. And I can do nothing. He was a human being at that point, bound to the earth, could not move about the universe, could not project himself across the world or through the universe. Without the Father in heaven, he was helpless. There was nothing he could do. So he prayed continually and was filled with the Spirit of God so that he could do some miracles here and there. And he could perceive people's attitudes and minds. But he did not have the strength and the power and the glory that he has today. And then he's going to show when he comes back. He suffered in all points like his we. He was tempted in every way that you and I have ever been tempted. Now, you just took it a little room full of people like that. And the composite temptation that has occurred among this many people is an incredible amount, isn't it? Just one of us in the temptations that we have gone through in our lives is an incredible amount to do evil of one form or another. And we've responded to that temptation all too often, and everything we can produce is like a bunch of dirty rags. Verse 7, And there is none that calls upon your name, that stirs up himself to take hold of you. See, that's the problem in the church today. Turn to me with your whole heart, he says, and then you will find me. But he says, out of all that I've called, out of all that I've done, I look around and it doesn't seem like there's anybody that's going to really make the effort to turn and grab hold of me. Remember how Jacob grabbed hold and would not turn loose? though faced by a much stronger being who ultimately touched his thigh and put it out of joint that easily. He would not turn loose. He doesn't find many like that. He says, I don't see any around here. Now, that's not saying every individual because he does say that some will take hold. But he's saying it's out of the numbers that have been exposed to His truth and His way, the amount that take hold of Him is minuscule. For you have 
hid your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Most people in the church today can't even find him because he's hidden his face from us. And only those who seek like you would look for silver or gold and seek him with their whole heart are going to find him. Those who take it flippantly, take it lightly, are simply not going to find him. He hid his face. But now, O Eternal, you are our Father. Okay? He says, you find yourself in this condition where we find ourselves today. Now, here's the approach to have. Now, O Eternal, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are potter. There's a hum- humble approach that we heard about this morning in the sermon. And we are all the work of your hand. We can't stand up and say, I'm a self-made man, I'm a self-made Christian, can we? Sometimes I look at my life, I've been exposed to the church since I was seven years old. And sometimes I look at me and I think, you haven't made any progress at all. All these years of working at it, sometimes I feel like I haven't got a penny as treasure in heaven. We are so futile as human beings. So we have to say, you're our Father, mold us, you make us. We look at our righteousness and it's nothing. That's why he says there in Isaiah 54, last verse, their righteousness will be of me. My righteousness. That's the only kind that counts. The only kind that does any good. So we plead with him, be not angry, very sore, O eternal, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech you, we are all your people. So we look at ourselves and there's nothing there, in our opinion, I hope, worth saving. Who does he look to? To those that say, I pray daily, I fast twice in the week, or to those that hang their head and say, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's looking for that attitude. I'm not anything. Mold me. Make me. You're the potter. You're the father. I'm the clay. Make me into something beautiful because I'm not. So we plead with him. Don't be sore. Don't be angry forever. Don't be bitter against us. Please forgive us. Have mercy on us. Because we are, such as we are, your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Now, I think that is true on a spiritual level, certainly, in the church. And it's true on a physical level with Zion and Jerusalem. Our holy city, or our holy and our beautiful house... Where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Whether it was the tabernacle in the wilderness, whether it was the temple of Solomon, whether it was the church and worldwide, that house has been burned up. And now he calls upon us to build a new house, I think both spiritual and physical, 
the spiritual, that we might enter into eternal life and set an example for others who will follow. And the physical is an example to the physical people of this earth of what it can be like. Will you refrain yourself for these things, O Eternal? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very, so, very sore? We need to be plaintive, pitiable, humble, meek. Oh God, we don't deserve anything, but have mercy on us anyway. Read Daniel's prayer, chapter 9. I've sinned, my people have sinned, have mercy on us. Pretty well summarizes the prayer. That's what Isaiah is telling us here. Then we go to chapter 65. I am sought of them that asked not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. Well, God says at some point with the pressure and the lack of blessing and turning my face away, people will begin to wake up. They'll begin to seek him. I said, Behold me, behold me to a nation that was not called by my name. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people which walk in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. Sometimes I may get a little frustrated preaching at myself and preaching at you, and you may get a little frustrated as well. Because it's hard and it's difficult. But God said He has that same emotion. I've spread out my hands all day long to rebellious people. They, they're going to walk in a way that's not good. I can say it over and over and over here about how we need to get away from this and get away from that. People just do their thing. It's like you're talking to a wall many times. And no matter how much I plead with you, with me, it's like talking to me as a wall. Because I change very slowly, as do you. It's hard for all of us. But the amount of preaching you hear, and the amount of preaching I hear from others and myself, is small compared to God 24 sevens looking down at a rebellious people and his hand is stretched out all day long. If we think we have some frustration and misery, what is his like? A rebellious people which walks in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. A people that provokes me to anger continually to my face. We sin right in his face, don't we? That sacrifices in gardens and burns incense upon altars of brick. Which remain among the graves and lodge in the monuments. Which eat swine's flesh and broth of abominable things is in their vessels. Now, we don't eat pig, do we? So that lets us off here. Moink. I don't think so. Doesn't he say there in Isaiah 52, Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal? Here he brings it up. 
We still have abominable, unclean thoughts. Same as pig in our brains, if not in our stomachs. What's the diff? Abominable things in our vessels. We're supposed to clean the inside of the cup. Not just the outside to look good to men, but the inside. Because that's what really gets dirty, isn't it? The inside of the cup. That's where stuff, if you don't wash the cup, rots and stinks. Is on the inside. So, yeah. We all have unclean thoughts. We all have have unclean actions. We all are as filthy rags and abominable to God. So he tells us here, clean it up. Which say, stand by yourself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. There you have it. That's the way we often are. I may not be much, but I'm better than you is often the attitude we have. I can see your sins. I can see your faults. And I'll talk about yours, either real or imagined. You know, we imagine a lot of things sometimes that aren't there, don't we? Because we just think that person must be evil. Why do we think they must be evil? Maybe we're judging them by ourselves. Hmm. They must be evil since I am. No, we don't think of it that way, do we? No, we stand up and say, I'm holier than you. Now, nobody here says that, do they? I don't remember ever hearing anybody walk up to somebody else as a member of the church and say, I'm holier than you. We know that would not be in good taste. But we certainly do it in attitude and action, don't we? It's called self-righteousness. Myself, me-self, I am more righteous than you. And therefore I can look down my nose and read your motives, and I know when you do something evil, and I'm going to go tell my best friend about it. And they're going to tell their best friend. And those aren't always the same. So it only takes about 15 minutes to get around. I'm holier than you. There's some real humility for you. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burns all the day. You ever notice people jockey for position around a campfire? That smoke starts swirling, boy, and it gets up your nose and in your eyes, and you're on the move. And then somebody moves over where you were, and they get smoke in their eyes and up their nose. And it's very, very uncomfortable. Now, God says... That anybody who sets himself up and thinks he's better than someone else by his attitude, words, actions, inferences, or however, is like smoke in his nose. He does not like it. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will recompense, even recompense into their bosom. God says, anytime you esteem yourself higher than others, and Paul did say, esteem others higher than yourself, anytime you lift yourself up in vanity, ego, and pride, and think your attitude, your knowledge, your way of doing things is better than someone else's, 
then God says He is going to recompense that negative approach to your own bosom. Scary, isn't it? We reap what we sow. We treat other people with mercy and love and kindness and patience. He will treat us that way. But if we put them down and are negative toward them, then God says that's what's going to come back to our bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Eternal, which have burned incense upon the mountains and blasphemed me upon the hills. Therefore will I measure their former work into their bosom. Just an attitude of lifting ourselves up in vanity, defending ourselves even. Christ defended himself not. He was silent. We get on the defensive in an instant to defend ourselves. We are to be Christ-like, not satanic, not as humans do. That's a tall order, isn't it? Not to defend yourself when attacked. We've all done it. We've all done it. All it takes is somebody just having a little attitude about us and we can get so hyper and excited and defensive and put them down. As I said the other day, who said that? Tell me who said that. I will defend myself. It is really hard to say, well, they could be right. It's really hard to say, if you think they said that about me, you ought to hear what I could say. I got a juicier story than theirs. They might not have got all the details right. I may not have done that one at all, but I did one worse. That's hard to do, isn't it? I've accomplished it a few times. It's not easy. People say things bad about us, or we think they said things bad about us. Boy, we start a witch hunt. We want to know who, what, why, where, when, and how about that, because we're going to tell them that they were wrong. And even if we did it, we still get that way, don't we? Thus says the Eternal, verse 8, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. It's new wine, it's not aged yet, but don't destroy it, because one of these days it's going to be good. So will I do for my servants' sakes, that I may not destroy them all. He's going to save some out of this mess. Don't destroy the wine. Let it ferment. Let it age. Let it mature. Don't destroy all my people. He won't allow, allow Satan to do it. And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob, just a small, you know, a tree, a vine, a plant, produces a small self, doesn't it? A seed. We're the seed of God. We haven't grown yet. We haven't unfolded our leaves yet and produced flower or fruit. We're just that little seed from God. I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob. Not all of Jacob, 
just a small amount of Jacob, and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains. He's calling a small gathering, a small group of people to inherit his mountains. Mount Zion, the mountain of Jerusalem. And my elect, New Testament talks of the church as his elect, shall dwell there. I shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. And Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Achor, or trouble, a place for the herds to lie down in, for my people that have sought me. So those who really do take hold on God and seek Him, grab on like Jacob did, a small seed of Jacob, those few from Jacob who have the same attitude he had when he wrestled with Christ. I will not turn loose until you give me my blessing is the way we need to be. Give him no rest until this is done. Be after him day and night, brethren. That's what we need to do. Now, for the gathering and the building of the temple and the end time work, we need to be after him. And then, ultimately, in an overall sense, until the kingdom of God is here, we need to be after Him. And not let Him rest until He does these things. Now, this is up going back and forth between the kingdom of God and a picture of it when it's here, and then where we still are looking for that, but it's not quite here yet, and what our attitude needs to be to help see that it gets here and we're part of it. So he's going to make a peaceful dwelling place for people that have sought me. Verse 11, But you are they that forsake the eternal, that forget my holy mountain, that prepare a table for that troop, and and that furnish the drink I'm offering to that number. We go on about our cares, the things we want, things we enjoy, and we don't bring it to God. Where did he say back here, Oh, a few chapters back that we don't bring him the small cattle. We don't bring him the honeycomb or however he placed it, the milk and the honey, before God and the gifts to him. Where is my honor, says the Eternal? But you do these things among yourselves and for each other, but you forget me. Verse 12, Therefore will I number you to the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear. But did evil before my eyes, and did choose that where I delighted not. Even the church, he says, 90% of it is going to go into the great tribulation and have the sword after them. Because they took lightly God Almighty. That's sad, isn't it? That so many could be called, and yet so few chosen, and to be truly elect. And that's why we pray that we be accounted worthy. Because I doubt if any of us really feels elect, do we? If we do, we're probably self-righteous. We feel like the worms under the barrel most of the time, I'm afraid. But you know that's the way God really wants us to? He says, he says have mercy on me, a sinner. I know I'm nothing. I know I'm filthy rags. Have mercy on me. 
and give me your righteousness. We have nothing to brag of. We have nothing to have any vainglory or pride in. We're weak, base, carnal human beings struggling against the flesh to walk in the Spirit. Struggling to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ and failing miserably every rotten day of our lives. Now, do I want us to feel like pond mud or scum? Not necessarily. We still need to laugh and smile and carry on and keep a stiff upper lip and a stiff backbone and seek God with all our hearts. But at the same time, let's recognize how far short we fall of being like God is. That's what he's trying to get across. We can compare ourselves among ourselves and say, I'm holier than you. But we're not. We all have our faults and weaknesses. You know, if the penalty is death for any sin, I guess it doesn't really matter which sin we have, does it? They all bring the same thing. So we have to be forgiven of all of them. I think that was in verse 13. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Or he's taken him to the slaughter. Maybe I stopped there in verse 12. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did eat my eyes and did choose that wherein I delighted not. We make the wrong choices so many times. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Those who seek God and do obey Him and serve Him are going to have plenty, and those who don't are going to go hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Those He gathers and who serve Him and do His work are going to have plenty, and those who do not respond are going to go through horror. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit. And you shall leave your name for a curse to my chosen. For the eternal God shall slay you and call his servants by another name. So those who do not obey are going to trouble and to slaughter, and those who will obey will be given a new name. That he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. If there's anything we can be blessed in, it is that we have the knowledge of God and His truth. That's the only thing we can glory in. Because of ourselves, we are nothing. And he that swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. That's the only thing substantive, the only thing that's lasting, that's any good. Because the former troubles are forgotten, and because you are hid from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Now here is where we departed greatly from Scripture doctrinally, in believing the earth would be all burned up after the great white throne judgment. And there will be no flesh left in the new heavens and the new earth when God created a new heaven and brought a new earth. We were wrong. We thought there would be no, heaven, no humans in the new heavens and the new earth. It was not that way at all. 
And as we read down here, he introduces a new heaven and a new earth. But be you glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. What does that remind you of? Revelation 21. No more weeping, no more sorrow. That's the beginning of the millennium. That's when Christ returns. When the bride is shown as the new Jerusalem. There shall be no more tense and infant of days, nor an old man that has not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old. During this period of the new heavens and the new earth, there are going to be children, and they're going to die a hundred years old. But the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. This is the new heavens and new earth now. And they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit, like is happening to our houses now when we're losing them, as Isaiah 5 and Zephaniah say. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days are of a tree are the days of my people, they'll live a long time, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the eternal and their offspring with them. He tells us He will bless our seed and our seed seed if we will obey Him. So our children will produce in the millennium, and our grandchildren will be there, and there will be children, offspring, with them during the new heavens and the new earth. How come we couldn't read all of this decades ago? We just read, I'll create new heavens and a new earth, tied it together with First Peter 2 and... Isaiah 24, and said the earth's all going to burn up. We did the exact same thing Ellen G. White did when she read Isaiah 24. It says, I'm going to make the earth a cinder and I'm going to burn it. And then she'd leave out where it said, and few inhabitants left, or few men there. She just said it's going to just become a crust. Burned up, and then new heavens will be created. Peter was quoting Isaiah 24 when he wrote that in 1 Peter. Now, it's imagery. It's God showing, I'm going to burn the earth with fire, but He shows some people are going to survive. And when the new heavens and new earth are here, they are going to be children being born. We'll see this at the end of chapter 66 very clearly. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Eternal. Sounds like Isaiah 11, doesn't it? Exact same verbiage. Millennium. And even before, for a small amount of humanity that will be there as an example to the world. I said I would, and I shall. Uh, it's, it's chapter 66, let's go through. Thus says the Eternal, The heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build to me? And where is the place of my rest? I think there is yet a temple to be built that will be defiled. Ezekiel's temple. But when the new heavens and new earth come, the new Jerusalem is coming in all its glory, and God the Father and the Son will be the light of it in neither night nor day at the beginning of the millennium. 
You won't be able to build a place for God then, will you? Or a house for God? He's bringing it with Him. 144,000 is the bride and they are the holy Jerusalem. For all those things is my hand made, and all those things have been, says the Eternal. Now you can try to build a fine house for me. You can do all you want. But here's who I'm going to look at. The Jews can build a fancy temple over there and say, Oh Lord, look what we have done for you. And they may very well do that. Here's who I will look to. Him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. The meek, the humble. Those are the ones God will look to. I think that God inspired the messages today. I felt that they were very, very timely. God knew what was in these chapters as well. And He... It appears worked through the men here to begin establishing all these things that we're reading this afternoon to cap the day. He knew all these elements were in Isaiah. That's where he caused those guys to go. They didn't even know it. But he did it. I believe God inspires. I believe He's directing us and helping us see the things that need to be seen. He is capable of that. He that kills an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrifices a lamb is as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offers an oblation is as if he offered swine's blood. He that burns incense, incense as if he blessed an idol. I mean, you can have a form of doing things right, but if the attitude is not really right and we're not really serving God Offering a lamb to God is the same thing as hacking a dog's head off. It has about the same meaning. It isn't clean. If we are not clean who bear the vessels of the eternal on the inside of the cup, then anything we do tastes bad to God, whatever we might pour out for Him. Yes, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I'll also... He talks about the new heavens and the new earth here. He talks about the kingdom of God on earth. And then he flashes back to the way we still are fighting it. Right up to the end, till the change come. We're still human. So, he says, this is what's coming. Here's the problems you still are working on. But here's what I'm going to do about it. So, he gives us chastening and encouragement and inspiration all right here in one little section of the Bible. It's really a very beautiful thing He puts forth for us. I will choose... Let's see, where was I? They've chosen their own, way, own their, their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose their delusions and will bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, nobody answered. When I spoke, they didn't hear. But they did evil before my eyes, and chose that in which I delighted not. So we're seeing the majority here are going to be doing that. And only a few, then, will do what he wants done. We need to be a few. Among the few. That's where we need to be. So he says, that's the way it is. 
Hear the word of the Eternal, you that tremble at His word. Listen to these words. Hear it. Get it. Do something about it. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake. For the knowledge we have and the things we believe. The rest of the church thinks we're kooks. And if you think they think you're a kook, you don't know what they think about me. I'm the kookiest of the kooks. That's a fact. That's my reputation. I can live with that. I don't care what they think. I want to learn to tremble at the Word of God. That's what matters. Those that cast you out for my name's sake said, Let the Eternal be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. They thought they were making a righteous judgment. Those, the majority, upon the few. And we're not only, I don't say we here are the only few. It's going to be a much bigger group, a remnant of God's people. But the rest will look down upon them. But he shall appear to your joy if you tremble at my word, and they shall be ashamed. A a voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple. Going to be a city, Jerusalem, temple there. A voice of the eternal that renders recompense to his enemies. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. He says, Emmanuel will be born to his end-time people. That's a prophecy back in Isaiah 7. It's reiterated in Matthew 1, where it says, You call him Jesus or Yeshua, they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. It was a prophecy of a time when God would be with us. And he's promised if we obey, he will come and dwell with us. And therefore, Emmanuel is what we will call him. Who has heard such a thing? Did you ever have a baby before the contraction started? Now, we think we've been in pain. No, no. Not that much, really, have we? Did anybody drive out of here and they stopped them down there and shot them to death? Have they ripped any of us open? Pregnant with child? No. Have they cut off food and water and put us under siege? No. Do they even know about us for the most part? No. We haven't suffered. We haven't travailed. We go through a little emotional difficulty here, don't we? Dealing with each other. talking about how bad everybody else is and how they ought to quit gossiping as we gossip about them by saying that. Hmm. Whatever. We haven't suffered persecution. We've been put in jail. Martyred. Hung upside down. No. Sawed in half like Isaiah. Torn of beasts. Living in caves. Old trailers don't count. Caves. We haven't suffered, brethren. We haven't travailed. Come on. We've had a little emotional difficulty. Pink toothbrush, if you will. 
We haven't suffered. You read of the suffering in the Bible about people who disobey God, and then you can talk suffering if you want. Yeah, I'm not trying to minimize what we go through. It is emotionally and spiritually very difficult. There's no doubt of that. But he's using metaphor here. Before we really get into trouble, we're going to deliver. Before the real pain starts, God is going to deliver this lady. Let's keep on reading and see what it says about it. Her pain, before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Emmanuel is delivered to her. She has him to come dwell with her, to take care of her. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? It's almost going to be like that. Suddenly, people are going to gather from all over the world, or north, south, east, and west, to serve God, do His end-time work, and build His temple. It's going to seem like it just suddenly happened in a day. People are not going to see all the preparation that God is doing ahead of time to prepare this and have these people ready so that He can stir them to come and build a temple, as Haggai and Zechariah say. Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. When we really buckle down and get serious about this and put ourselves in pain and sweat blood and grab hold of God the way He tells us to, it's going to happen. Just like that. As soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth? Is God going to bring us right up to it and then say, put your knees together, honey. This is going to be a while. Just a few more years. Don't worry about it. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Eternal? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, says God? Shall I start bringing birth pangs, contractions, and then say, I'll just shut the womb. We'll wait a few more years. As this thing moves forward, before we really get into deep pain, God is going to deliver us. That's what He's saying. Rejoice you with Jerusalem and be glad with her. All you that love her, rejoice for joy with her. All you that mourn for her, for the set time to favor Jerusalem has come. That you may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations. That you may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. He's going to give us milk and honey. And we will succor Mother Israel, the church. Isaiah 55. Come and drink milk and wine without money. Have all the blessings of Almighty God upon you. That's before the millennium starts. For thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall you suck, you shall be born upon her sides, and be dandled upon her knees. 
just like a baby in its mother's arms. It's going to have every comfort it could want. Nurse out, be dandled, be held, be rocked, be burped, be taken care of. It's coming to a people who gather to serve God, and then it is going to spread across the earth in the millennium. As one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And when you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like an herb, and the hand of the Eternal shall be known toward his servants. Won't turn his hand away. He won't turn his face away. He'll turn his hand and his face to us. For behold, the Eternal will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Eternal plead with all flesh and the slain of the Eternal shall be many. Look at the contrast between those who obey God and those who do not. Boy, it makes you want to say, choose you this day, good or evil, why will you die? Why not choose good? It's what he told ancient Israel. It's what he's telling the church right now today. They that sanctify themselves, I'm holy, and purify themselves in the gardens behind one's tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination in the mouth shall be consumed together, says the Eternal. I think there's a metaphor there of unclean thoughts, unclean actions, sins of all kinds, not just the eating of pigs. The pig is not to be eaten physically or the mouse, but it is a type of the unclean. Did not Christ send the unclean spirits into the swine to show that an unclean spirit belonged with the swine? For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. We've been building to this. That's what this whole end time work from chapter 40 on is all about. It's God bringing forth a people that will show forth that He is the living God, and then He will come and underline it and exclamation point it. They'll come and see my glory, and I will be a sign among them. We won't just be a banner before them. He will be a sign among them then. Once he returns, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations to Tarshish, Pull, and Lud, that draw the bow to Tubal and Jabin, to the islands afar off, that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. So once he comes, Isaiah thirty twenty one, we'll see our teachers. The people that are physical are going to see the bride of Christ. They're going to take them along the right way. And then there are going to be people that go out who are converted. And they're going to go to the Gentile nations and spread the word of God there. Israel will be gathered about Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. But then it is going to go around the world to all these Gentiles. It will be declared there. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the eternal out of all nations upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the eternal as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Eternal. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the Eternal. 
For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me. He's going to make the new heavens and the new earth. They will be right there before him. He will be ruling them. So shall your seed and your name remain. We will be eternal at that point. And as he rules his new heaven and new earth, we will rule as kings and priests with him. And we will be eternal as well and will remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Eternal. The Father, the Son, the Bride of the Lamb are going to be in the Holy Jerusalem, ruling the earth from there, in the new heavens and the new earth, and all flesh will come to worship them. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. This has to be the beginning of the millennium, when all these people have been killed in the seven last plagues and the war that Christ wages when he comes back with his sword. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring to all flesh. The people who are left are going to have the dead lying about as a warning that you had better be obey God or you will die. So here he projects us into the millennium and we will be there to bring peace to all people. We will have learned the way of peace. We'll have learned how to bring it. We will have learned how to teach people to live so that they can be happy and secure and strong and wealthy and have happy families and children that they can be pleased with. So God gives us this whole story. And the living God will rule on this earth. And we will rule with him if we obey him and serve him and do the things he said here to do. If not, we'll perish. And that is the contrast that is shown in these last few chapters of Isaiah. While it is scary, it is also very encouraging and very inspiring. Why? Because we know. And because we have our heart set on Jerusalem, it comes to our mind. Because we want the new Jerusalem here, and we want God here ruling. And since we have that mindset, we are going to overcome. We are going to grow. We are going to take hold of God with all our heart. And we're going to succeed. He will never leave us nor forsake Him. And we have determined, have we not, that we have set our hand to the plow and we will not turn back. And we're going to see this thing through all the way. And we'll be glorified when Christ returns. And our change comes. And this corruption will put on incorruption and this mortal immortality. And we will never cry, nor sorrow, nor shed a tear, or feel any more pain forevermore. That can be us. Onward, you people.